It's hard to believe the world has gone to hell in a handbasket in such a short period of time. It just seems like a eye blink ago that we had a different administration and that America was viewed with a little more strength. I mean, it's a far gone conclusion we wouldn't be having the Russians invading Ukraine if Donald Trump was president. Now, we not only have the Russians invading Ukraine, we have them threatening the use of nuclear weapons, and the Chinese are eagerly and anxiously watching, looking for additional signs of American and Western weakness so they can uh, put into play their long-held designs on Taiwan and annex that. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to a podcast of The Jamie Dury Show. And yes, I know you're going to say, where the devil have you been? Uh, Rather than get into a lengthy explanation, let me just say that my absence was unavoidable. There were many projects on the table that had to be completed, and I really didn't have time for any podcasts. I've been busy busier than you can possibly imagine. So just take my word for that. But I'm back now and glad to be so. Yes, so there's so many things going on in the world. But before we get to that, just to remind people, if you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go to either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending which device you use. And you can download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service. You can subscribe to the show that way. You'll be informed when new episodes are uploaded and you'll be able to leave comments and leave reviews. That's if you wish to use the Podbean app, a third-party podcast aggregator app. If you're very comfortable with your native app, simply go to the iTunes uh, Play Store or the Google Play Store and you can subscribe to the show by just searching out The Jamie Dury Show. Any way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews, and we need both of a positive nature. Thank you very much. And you'll be notified whenever a new podcast is uploaded. So there's so much to talk about. So much has happened since I last did a podcast. And I know that everyone's mind is on Ukraine. Uh, I will address that, uh, the foreign policy issues facing us. First, I just want to catch up a little bit on a few of the things that happened Uh, during the course of my uh, absence. One of the first things that I would like to speak about briefly are the recent 2022 Winter Olympic Games, which took place in China. I say briefly because I was not as enamored of the Olympic Games as so many others seem to be. A more contemptuous display, a pathetic display of leftism in every facet of these games you could not imagine. We had a Russian skier who was doping, using performance-enhancing drugs, and yet she was cut slack. One of the reasons why is because she's a Russian, and the other reason why is she's a minor. And they're trying to say, well, maybe it wasn't her fault, it was her handlers that did it. But how does that follow, even if it were her handlers that doing it? Aren't the athletes who may not be minors and would be responsible for their own actions, and as a consequence... Uh, competed naturally and legally, aren't they being affected by allowing this cheater to compete? She never should have been allowed on the ice. And I give full credit to the American commentators who uh, made point of mentioning as much. At least they didn't shirk from their duties. There was no way she deserved to be on on that ice. Now, that was just the least of it. The other thing that was nauseating to me, and I hope it was nauseating to you, 
Well, these commercials. Now, I don't know what the commercials were like in different parts of the country, but in the New York metro market where I am, it seemed like every commercial was COVID, 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 hawking the COVID, how it's such a threat, the COVID, wear your mask, the COVID, the vaccinees, pr- vaccinations, protect everyone. And we all know now it's a hoax. And then you had the end of the Olympic Games with that clown talking about, we all have to survive the pandemic. There's no pandemic. I don't know how many times I have to say it. The Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920 was a pandemic. The bubonic plague was an incredible pandemic. But the recent flu, 1918-1920, the Spanish flu, I've told you before, infected 500 million people, and depending who you listen to, killed between 56 and 100 million. Now that's a lot when you consider that the population of the earth at that time was only 1.8 billion people. Well, today it's over four times as large. And COVID did not kill 56 to 100 million people. It's only killed 5 million people. Now, it's not an insignificant matter to those 5 million people and their families. But in terms of what you want to categorize this as a pandemic, 5 million is not a lot. Particularly when recent information from uh, 2017 on, 2017, 2019, now shows that the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control have upgraded, or I should say updated, their mortality estimates from the normal seasonal flu. It used to be a quarter of a million to half a million people globally died from influenza. Now they're estimating that we have up to 650,000 deaths annually from respiratory causes alone associated with influenza and an additional 99 to 200,000 annual deaths from lower respiratory tract infections directly attributable to the influenza. So we're talking about something, if you go on the high side, 2,000, about 850,000 deaths. On a normal year, the world is completely content without any protest, any masks, any vaccinations to accept close to 1 million deaths annually from the seasonal flu. Now, this pandemic has been with us since 2020 and in China since 2019. And when I checked last month, the worldwide deaths total from COVID over these couple of years is 5 million. So I think it's a little bit ridiculous for us to be upending our existence and still trying to cling with an almost fetish-like devotion to this notion that this COVID-19 hoax we've been burdened with is anything on the order of a pandemic. Is it a problem? Yes, but it's not that much more of a problem on the order of the um, annual seasonal flu, as the numbers indicate. There's an old saying, which I've quoted many times before in this program, figures don't lie, but liars figure. And those are the figures. So we have this nonsense coming from the Olympics about the pandemic. And there's one particular person in the Olympics that I think was held out as some sort of hero and role model. And quite frankly, I think she is a piece of garbage. And I want to talk about it right now. That's my main reason for wishing to speak about the Olympics. And I'm referring, of course, to Eileen Gu. Eileen Gu, for those of you who don't know, was a skier 
winter Olympic skier, freestyle skier. Uh, she competes in half pipe, slope style, big air, etc. And she won a lot of medals. Well, the reason why I don't like Eileen Gu, because Eileen Gu was competing for communist China, red China. Now, normally, there would be nothing unusual about a Chinese national competing for the Chinese team. There's only one problem. Eileen Gu was born in San Francisco, California, in the United States. She owes everything in her life to the United States. I'll read just a little bit from her Wikipedia page. You can take it for what it's worth. She was born to a first-generation immigrant mother and an American father. Her mother raised her as a single parent. Her mother was a member of the short track speed skating team, uh, ski, uh, speed skating team and she attended uh, Peking University for her undergraduate in chemical engineering. She moved to, from China to the U.S. as a student in her 20s. There she enrolled at Auburn University and Rockefeller University. Uh, and then while attending the latter, she skied at Hunter Mountain in New York State. And her passion for skiing deepened uh, after she moved to San Francisco where she was attending Stanford, another great privileged university. And so Gu enrolled, uh, was enrolled by her mother in ski lessons in Lake Tahoe. Supposedly, this, she could ski with her mother, and then she became uh, a, a very, very good skier. So now, why is this woman skiing for China? Well, in 2018-2019, in the Freestyle Ski World Cup, she competed for the United States. She has competed for China since June of 2019 after requesting a change of nation status with the International Ski Federation. Now, this is very interesting. She states her goal was to compete for China in the 2022 Winter Olympics. She posted this on Instagram, stating that through skiing, she hopes to inspire millions of young people in China and, quote, to unite people, promote common understanding create com, uh, communication, and forge friendships between nations. This woman is delusional if she thinks she can forge a friendship between the communist Chinese and the United States. Now, she's declined. This is another reason why I don't like her. She has declined to disclose her citizenship because China does not recognize dual citizenship. And the Chinese consulate general in New York told the BBC, again, this is from Wikipedia, that Gu would have to have been naturalized or gained permanent residency status in China to compete for its team. The International Olympic Committee confirmed that the Chinese Olympic Committee had presented them with a copy of her Chinese passport as proof of Chinese nationality acquired in 2019. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. They say there is no evidence that she has given up her U.S. citizenship. And there is some evidence they say that she has not. In interviews, all she says is, nobody can deny I'm American. Nobody can deny I'm Chinese. When I'm in U.S., I'm American. When I'm in China, I'm Chinese. But why won't she disclose her citizenship? It seems to me that these things do not add up. If China does not recognize dual citizenship... And the Chinese consulate general in New York represented that she would have had to have been naturalized or gained permanent residency status in China in order to compete for his team. And the Olympic Committee confirmed that the Chinese Olympic Committee had presented them with a copy of a Chinese passport, which you can only get 
as proof of Chinese nationality acquired in 2019, it seems to me that she would have had to have given up or proved to the satisfaction of the Chinese that she gave up her U.S. citizenship. This is very murky, at least. It is contemptible at best. Ms. Gu owes everything in her life to the United States of America. And to somehow relinquish citizenship, turn your back on the nation that bred you, and then give glory to a despotic communist regime through the Olympics and come up with this fanciful, whimsical excuse that you're going to promote unity. And go, this is a bunch of hogwash. This woman is a communist. She's a traitor to the United States. And far from being embraced and honored, she should be shunned, scorned, and never allowed to return to this country. You love the damn Chinese so much, Goo. Go to hell and live in Beijing. We don't need you here. Now on to the next business. Well, there's a lot more problems pressing us than Eileen Gu. Let's get a little domestically uh, focused here, domestically focused. Everyone laughed at us Trump supporters. Everyone laughed at Donald Trump himself when he said that his campaign was spied on, that the White House was spied on. It was all a big joke. And the way they did it was joke about it and then say that he was an asset of Russia And the people pointing the fingers at him, saying he was an asset Russia, were uh, themselves assets of the Chinese, like Eric Swalwell, that lunatic out in California. He's sitting there sleeping with some Chinese spy, Fang Fang, sounds almost, or Fan Fan, sounds almost like something out of a James Bond novel. And here he is pointing the finger at Donald Trump. But as a result of the work of John Durham, who everybody gave up on, it is now more than quite apparently true to any honest individual that what we on the right all knew years ago, namely that the Clinton campaign was engaged in a spying operation against then-candidate Trump and then-President Trump, aided by individuals within the United States government. This is confirmed. Now, most people, we know this because Durham has named people. He named people in the Clinton campaign And Clinton had to have known about it, Uh, despite all the other things that came out uh, prior about the dossier and how it was fraudulent, it was unverified, and how, despite representation to the contrary by the former FBI director McCabe and his predecessor, that that swine, um, they relied almost, if not heavily, almost exclusively on that Steele dossier. Now, most people uh, complicit in this type of uh, operation, when confronted, would crawl under a rock and try to avoid being seen and not be heard from again. But Hillary Clinton remains as shameless and unapologetic, uh, unapologetic as ever, laughing it off and calling it all a right-wing conspiracy. I wonder if she's still going to call it a right-wing conspiracy when people that used to work for her campaign or work for her start going off to jail. Will she still be calling it a right-wing conspiracy? It's my contention that Hillary Clinton needs to be in jail, and I think people should start forgetting about um, um, having a modicum of decency and protocol and unity and all that nonsense that the Democrats talk about all the time but never practice. If Donald Trump or any Republican gets in office today, they should be all in prosecuting Hillary Clinton and haul her off to prison. This woman is a thief. She is a liar. And she needs to be 
taken out. So hopefully we'll be keeping our eye on that and we'll get some satisfaction because what happened is shameless. Absolutely shameless in that regard. So now let's turn to something more contemporary. The Russians invading Ukraine. Donald Trump spoke at CPAC over the weekend. He was on fire. He gave an excellent speech. And he pointed out something very interesting. We are now comfortably and quite well into the 21st century. Under President George W. Bush, the Russians invaded Georgia. Nothing was done to stop them beyond sanctions. Under Barack Hussein Obama, the Russians invaded Crimea. Under brainless, gutless, clueless Joe Biden, the Russians have invaded Ukraine and are now threatening nuclear options. Under Donald Trump, the Russians invaded nowhere. Donald Trump administration is the only administration under which Russia did not invade another country in the 21st century. Now, that's true. That's absolutely true. Now, why is Russia doing this? Well, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB operative. He was in charge of the KGB. He's a very, very uh, nefarious fellow. He has illusions of grandeur. He's a bit nutty. He may be completely mentally unstable, and he definitely has the desire to recreate the former Soviet Union. If he gets into Ukraine, he knocks off a big chunk of territory and gives himself a very good um, launching pad to invade other parts of uh, the former Soviet Empire in the Baltics. Now, the Ukrainian people have put forth a lot more resistance than Vladimir Putin ever expected. They thought they would roll over this country, but his military is not doing as well as he thought it would do. And so now he's raising the ante. They escalate. When they find themselves up against it, they escalate. Now he's threatening, if anybody interferes, uh, that he's going to bring in a nuclear option. Well, it seems that NATO is not backing down. NATO doesn't like what Russia is doing. Uh, they want to try and stop them. And the recreation of the former Soviet Union is something I think would be unwise. And it's certainly something most people in free nations like Slovakia and Ukraine and the neighboring nations don't want to see happen, let alone the West not wanting to see it happen. Because as Russia encroaches and takes over these territories and recreates the Soviet Union, the Soviet slash Russian border gets ever closer to Europe, making uh, ground wars or the uh, survivability on the part of Europe in a ground war that much more untenable. But how is Russia able to do this? We know that he wanted to do it, but why are they suddenly able to do this? Well, first of all, what you have to understand about Russia that most people don't is Russia may have a first world military, although uh, full disclosure, we're, we're learning that they may not be as good as everybody thought they were, but let's give them credit for that for the time being for the sake of argument. Russia may very well have a first world military, but they are still nevertheless a third world country. They do not have a diversified economy. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Russia is little more than a giant gasoline station. Their main source of income is through the sale of oil. They have a lot of oil. 
and they'd like to acquire more. Now, the more oil is worth, the more oil is used, the more money Putin has to be adventurous in Russia, near Russia, and other parts of the globe. Oil is skyrocketing now, thanks to clueless Joe Biden. Under Donald Trump, the United States of America became a net exporter of oil, not an importer of oil. Now, what people don't understand, so let me explain it to you, is the, econ- the economics of oil. People always ask me, well, if we only get a small percentage, this is pre-Donald Trump, if we only get a small percentage of our oil from the Middle East, why does the Middle East have such great effect on our prices of oil here? Well, that's a good question, and I'll explain it. The reason why is oil is a worldwide commodity. People use it all over the world. The Chinese use it, the Russians use it, the Americans use it, the Europeans use it, everyone uses it. It is a convenient fossil fuel. Now, different nations get their oil from different sources. The problem is that the worldwide usage of oil uh, is something along the line of about 90 billion barrels a day. The extraction of oil from the ground is only marginally more than that, 92, something like that, billion barrels a day. About 20 years ago, it was about 82 billion barrels a day. By now, it's got to be up to close to 90. But the most important part you understand conceptually is that the production of oil is only slightly and incrementally higher than the rate of use of oil. Follow? So any disruption to any supply puts pressure on the remaining avenues of supply. Now, a a country like Japan, for instance, which is an industrialized nation, they get about 40% of their oil from the Middle East. So if there's a disruption to oil supply in the Middle East or an increase in price, they have to now get that oil from another source. Where are they going to get it? They're going to get it from sources that we might use, like Mexico and Canada. This, again, is before Donald Trump opened up a lot of drilling and fracking and what have you here in the United States. And so that causes a competition for those resources and it causes the price to go up. So oil is a worldwide commodity. The disruption to a supply chain of oil, regardless of where it occurs, affects the price worldwide, even if you don't get it from that disrupted supply chain. So we clear on that? Well, we had Trump and we had become a net exporter of oil. Oil was very, very low. It had been lowest it had been in quite some time. Oil is now $100 a barrel. It hasn't been that high in God knows how long. And when it goes up that markedly, as, as prices go up, people seem to curb their usage. And you always try and find that sweet spot. What is the spot when we get the right price where, we, where oil companies feel like they maximize revenue uh, and at the same time um, don't lose profit because they drive the usage down because of the high prices. But when these things are going up this quickly, people don't have much else to do except suck it up and pay it. So Russia is flush with cash cash since Biden has come in, primarily because of the inflated prices of oil. Now, the more money they have, the more they're able to disrupt, the more they're able to get adventurous and funding their, their wars of um, uh, liberation, as they call them. I mean, Putin actually had the gall to come out and say that he was going into Ukraine to liberate and rescue the Ukrainian people. Funny, no one told the Ukrainians that. They don't view themselves as being rescued. They view themselves as coming under the iron foot 
of Russian oppression. And that's exactly what's taking place. But um, he wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for all this money that he's getting through the sale of oil. Now, I'm old enough to remember when the Russians went into Afghanistan under Jimmy Carter, and he did very, very little. He boycotted the Olympics and did a few other token protests, but not much else. And the same thing is happening now. History is repeating itself. We're not going to uh, use Russian vodka. We're not going to support this product, but we're still going to buy Russian oil because we need it. And it's the most insane thing I've ever heard of. But when Ronald Reagan came in, everything changed because Ronald Reagan understood what I just explained a few minutes earlier, that Russia, for all its military might, was still a third world country with a First-rate military, but third world nonetheless. It was a giant gas station. And he realized, because of that, that their economy was not large enough to, to support uh, military spending on the scale that they uh, were currently doing it. And he reasoned correctly that if they were forced to spend more, he could break the country. That's exactly what Ronald Reagan did. Because the United States economy was very large compared to the Russians. It was very vibrant. So what Ronald Reagan did was he began building up the American military that Jimmy Carter had allowed to fall into disrepair. He built our Navy, added more ships, uh, re-equipped everyone, upgraded weapons. And he was only spending about 4% of our gross domestic product. In order for the Russians to keep up with a concomitant level of military force, they were forced to spend something on the order of 25% of their gross domestic product, and they could not do it. So by outspending the Russians, he spent them into oblivion and they broke down. Donald Trump was using essentially the same formula. He was curtailing Vladimir Putin by strangling his supply of money through which he supports these ventures. By accessing greater supplies of oil, by opening up fracking, by affecting futures markets with the promise of the Keystone Pipeline, which, despite what that idiot Jen Psaki saying it would take years to develop, if they hadn't stopped it when they first came in on day one, we might actually have it by now. But still, they maintain that it would take years, but it's, it's nonsense. If we had those sources, we'd be able to do this. If we went back simply to the uh, attitude that Trump had before about allowing fracking here and drilling there and, and going back to being a net exporter of oil, the price of oil worldwide would plummet and Putin wouldn't be able to finance this stuff. So this stuff has worked in the past. It was largely responsible for the bankrupting of the former Soviet Union. And as a result, millions and millions of people were liberated when the Cold War came to an end. This lunatic in Moscow is now threatening to enslave millions of people all over again. And people are not going to put up with it. We cannot, we simply cannot allow this man to get away with this. But Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not the people to stop them. So I don't know where the leadership is going to come from. NATO may be well-intended, but NATO doesn't have the military might to stand up to the Russians. But who knows? Maybe in point of fact, they might, might very well have enough, given the level of impotence that the Russian military has exhibited in this attempt to uh, invade and overthrow the government of Ukraine. And I want to take my hat off to President Zelensky 
of the Ukraine, who, when asked by President Joe Biden if he would like to be evacuated, to be saved from the Russians, he responded defiantly, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. That's a man you can fight for. There's a leader you can respect. A man with no quit. So that's the state of affairs. And I can't wait to see tonight the State of the Union address uh, by Joe Biden. I mean, normally they start off with uh, what they've done uh, in the past year and all the good things they've accomplished and what the state of the country is. To list all the good things that Joe Biden has accomplished will probably take um, a substantial amount of time, about two and a half minutes. After that, it's all going to be misery. And I don't know how he's going to justify to the world um, that the country is not in a good state. When a man walks into a State of the Union address with an approval rating of 37%, which has got to be one of the lowest approval ratings ever, it's going to be kind of difficult to represent that things are all A-OK. We're in a very, very serious situation, ladies and gentlemen. Your news services are not telling you the truth about many things. They're still feeding you lies about the COVID-19 virus. They're still propping up this shell of a man as the leader of the free world. We have a lunatic in Russia threatening to destabilize the entire globe and bring us to the precipice of nuclear war. And we don't have a single, single strong backbone person in this administration to step up and take over. We have a transgender embracing military. We have a social justice project going on in what was once the greatest military in the world. We have a comedy of errors afflicting every possible facet of American government. We have democratic control of the Senate. We have democratic control of the House of Representatives. We have another justice to the Supreme Court being nominated who threatens to be every bit as liberal as the one who is retiring. And notice how they pressured him to retire because they didn't want him lingering on into the next administration, which will most likely be a Republican because nobody's going to vote for this lunacy again. And then he drops dead like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and they put another conservative on the court. Thank God that Donald Trump became president, if for no other reason than he was able to get three appointees on the court and solidly make it 6-3 conservative. Even if Roberts waffles to a degree, we still have a 5-4 solid conservative majority. There's a lot to be thankful for from Donald Trump. There's not much to be hopeful for with Joe Biden. Keep your powder dry. Keep your fingers crossed. Pray for the Ukrainian people. Pray for the United States and pray for a retaking of the Congress this fall in 2022. And we, here at the Jamie Dury Show, yours truly, will be covering it every step of the way. For the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury. Jamie Dury.